0: Hey, everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we're recording this podcast, and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present, and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am Ian Pollock, your familiar stranger today. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Schools of Culture, History, and Language, and Archaeology and Anthropology at Australian National University, the Australian Center for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, episode 15. Six months at The Familiar Strange, over 10,000 downloads on the podcast, over 40,000 views at thefamiliarstrange.com. I hope you feel like you've gotten to know us, your Familiar Strangers, a little bit. Uh, That's me, Ian, plus Julia Brown, Simon Theobald, and Jody Lee Trembath, four PhD candidates in anthropology at Australian National University. Making The Familiar Strange is work. It's not always easy, but we think that it's worth it. I hope that you think so too. The Familiar Strange is a podcast about doing anthropology alternating between group discussions where we spark four little anthropological discussions in about 20 minutes, and longer conversations with experts and senior academics about how they do anthropology. If you like what you hear, subscribe, rate, review, tell a friend, a colleague, a classmate, say hi or argue back on Twitter, at TFSTweets, or on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, we're everywhere. Now my conversation with Vijayendra Rao, lead economist at the World Bank in the research department author of countless books and articles, and a leader of the World Bank Social Observatory focused on raising the capacity of regular citizens for collective action and making government and big development more responsive. I caught Dr. Rao after a talk he gave about the Social Observatory at the Development Policy Center here at ANU. That talk was recorded also, and you can find a link in the show notes. Now, he's not an anthropologist, but he works with anthropologists, and he has a lot to say about how anthropologists work in big-time development and what it's like to work with us. That kind of development... A lot of it is direct interventions, going to places and communities where people are poor or disempowered and trying to change things, working at a science of deliberate social change with experiments and monitoring and a lot of money behind it. Big powerful institutions trying to change culture and social structure. I can safely say not all anthropologists are on board with this. My colleagues, when I told them I booked this interview, they told me to be super hostile and make him answer for everything they don't like about the development industry. On the other hand, full disclosure, I've done a little bit of consulting for the bank. Maybe I'd like to do a little bit more. I guess I tried to balance those two sides. When I did this interview, it was tempting to try and make my questions stand in for all of anthropology and make his answers stand in for all of development. But I'm an individual. He's an individual laying out a point of view. If you're an anthropologist or studying anthropology, where do you stand on these big, powerful institutions set on certain kinds of social change? Give it some thought. We talk about how ethnography fits into interdisciplinary research, the need for all kinds of dialogues to be co-produced between development agencies and the state, the so-called beneficiaries on the ground, and between implementers and researchers, the search for global best practices versus acknowledgement that social systems are all local, and what bugs him most about anthropologists and where he wishes we would contribute. Quick note on terms, we talk about RCTs, which are randomized controlled trials, a method of running large-scale social experiments. So, here it is, my conversation with Vijayendra Rao. So, you're an economist. Uh Uh-huh. But you seem to be sort of a champion in the World Bank and in the development world for anthropology or for kind of ethnographic field methods. I wondered what brought you to that.
1: I'm not a champion of anything. I'm a champion of common sense, you know, in the sense that I think divides between disciplines are an artifact of sort of part-dependent history. And those divides, as you know, are not just theoretical, they're also methodological. Mm -hmm. And they tend to select out certain types of people in some discipline or the other. If you're good at math, you go one place or whatever which I think does a disservice to policy making because it's very silly to, for instance, do an impact evaluation using some randomized controlled trial method, and not do a deep ethnography to understand why you got the results you got. just seems such an obvious integration of things. All
0: right, so let's walk that back for a yeah. second. Randomized controlled trial. Can you just talk about how that works for a second?
1: A randomized controlled trial is, is a method borrowed from public health and from medicine and so on. It's basically how all drugs are tested, right? You randomly assign a new drug, for instance. You pick a population. You randomly pick people with a... Say the, the population consists of people with a, a particular ailment. And then from that population, you'll pick a certain percentage to get the treatment, and another group gets a placebo. The explicit aim of RCTs was to bring the science of medical trials into development.
0: And so then you have to bring, you were talking about bringing kind of another ethnographic side to that? The
1: role of ethnography, and by that I don't mean what they call, you know, qualitative work, which can really be, you know, touch the water buffalo kind of stuff, you know? You, you go to the <laughs> thing. Uh, <laughs> and and you know people really think they do do focus groups. They've done qualitative work. So there's that other extreme of real crap that goes on, and the World Bank, like every other organization, is beset by that. It's it's in absence of rigorous data from whatever discipline. they they just get stories to justify whatever narrative they want to push.
0: So when you're talking about ethnography, you're not talking about, you could call it kind of non-rigorous, just stories. No, no, I'm talking about
1: serious stuff. I'm talking about serious, in mean, whatever discipline you might come from, whether it's sociology or anthropology or political science, uh, You know, they all have their standards for what good qualitative research is. So mm-hmm. let's, I'm talking about serious stuff, right? Okay. So I'm not an advocate of ethnography as such. I'm, as I said, I'm an advocate of using the right method to ask the right question. yeah. And I'm also believe very strongly that one method alone is not going to give you the right answer to whatever question you may have. Yeah. So for instance, I just finished uh, a paper, I just published a paper where we, in fact, did a randomized controlled trial of a citizenship training program in Northern Karnataka in India. And what we did there was we picked 50 villages where all of these villages are part of this Indian system of local government, with democratic collections and so on. But we, we assigned 50% of those villages on a random basis uh, an intensive engagement within an NGO that sort of activated citizens, taught them how to plan, you know, got them to, to engage in village meetings, to, make, to think about issues, come up with priorities, and so on. And 50% of the villages basically had whatever went on there. Not, they were, quote unquote, the control group. Now, that trial found that the citizenship training program had no impact. So that, that was a quantitative result. Mm-hmm. But with the 10% subsample, that is five villages treatment, five villages control, we tracked them with field investigators for a period of six years. So the, the randomized control trial just was a two-year gap. The qualitative work went on for six years. Six years? Six years. Over 20 villages. Yeah. So I had uh, basically 10 field investigators living either in those villages or nearby, and they would send us monthly reports. Their brief was uh, your, your your investigative reporters. Yeah, Don't interfere in anything that goes on there. Don't act as activist or anything of that sort. Just report on everything you see, politics, sociology, economics, going on in in those villages.
0: And those are just narrative reports? Those are narrative
1: reports covering certain issues that that we agreed on. So those monthly reports over a six-year period, so we had 10 monthly reports, two villages in each report over a six-year period in treatment and control. So the voluminous amount of narratives that come from that, that's our qualitative database.
0: Who's then reading that?
1: Us. So the researchers, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Me, Kripa Anandpur, my my co-author, who's a sociologist at the Madras Institute for Development Studies. We read through all that uh, and also made visits ourselves. Obviously, Kripa much more frequently than me, but I went at least twice a year. She would go several times a year, both to supervise as well as to visit. And what we found was something very interesting, that the reason why this didn't work was because some of those impacts were coming much later. They didn't happen in the period of the trial. Trajectories of change are unpredictable, and something can happen because of this. Some citizen it takes a long time to get something done. A local activist, because, you know, starting a mini social movement of some kind, doesn't have an effect till after four years. That was one thing. The second thing was the very very bad quality of facilitation. You know, the fact that. The top higher levels of government had no interest in this, so they they were kept shifting facilitators from one village to another. They were not giving them the time to do their work.
0: So facilitators are the people who, on the ground, implement the programs. Precisely, right? yeah. So you had a, you had some will coming from the coming from the development agency, yeah, but much weaker will in the government that then translated into exactly board administration exactly. at the coalface.
1: Exactly, yeah. So that that was the second reason why this didn't work, and the third reason why it didn't work was, you know, what this program did was that it was taking ideas developed in the state of Kerala, which is very progressive, sort of left-oriented state in India. It's well known for doing well on a whole bunch of indicators and bringing it to the neighboring state of Karnataka, but the northern part of Karnataka, which is a very feudal, very dry area. And the social context produced by that sort of geography and that sort of history made it very, very difficult. Deep control by elites, lots of guns and violence, you know. It's very difficult to make social change happen in those kinds of places. And you saw those narratives picking that stuff up. Uh, Sometimes reads like a Western novel, you know, some of the narratives that came from there. What we then did was to put, I think for the first time, this randomized control trial report with the ethnography into one paper.
0: What was that paper called?
1: It's called The Anatomy of Failure. And they gave us a revise and resubmit but they wanted us to cut the paper down to 10,000 words.
0: How long was it when you sent it in? 17. (laughs) (laughs) As somebody who reads papers all the time, I have some sympathy with that.
1: Well, yes, but if you're going to combine hardcore quantitative analysis with hardcore qualitative analysis, you need the time. You need the space. But the second thing is they wanted us to essentially make the qualitative work into the equivalent of a quantitative database. Quantitative database? In the sense that you put everything online, and then you every time you do a quote you sort of give the paragraph number and so on so people can just go and cross check i have some sympathy for that i think i think it's it's important for qualitative uh, research, ethnographic field reports, and that sort of thing to be archived. To so be is that saying accessible. that like,
0: when you have, say, an interview with an informant, you would put that entire interview yeah, online? that's what they wanted. See, I feel that th- that would go against the ethics protocols that we do here for a PhD work. Well, we have to th- keep th- th- our th- data th- private.
1: So there's, there are confidentiality issues which you can get around. You can change names, you can change you know, context. And you, but, but then the problem with that is we can change names, change context. How do you do the interpretive work? Right. So, so that becomes the, the contradiction. But the principle is essentially a good one. Because we know, going back to Margaret Mead, that people make up stories. <laughs> sure uh, uh, so, so, So how do you prevent that from happening? We, you know, as, as social scientists, we're not writing novels. We are trying to represent, quote-unquote, the truth in some way. So how do you cross-check that? And what's happened in the quantitative social sciences is that now all data is supposed to be up and freely available. So, in, And that's new, by the way. It's in the last five years that has happened. So anybody can cross-check that, replicate it, and so on. And it's really introduced a very healthy change, I think. So they were pushing us in that direction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we weren't ready for that. We were, if we were prepared for that from the time of the study design, then we could have done something. But exposed, it becomes very hard. Yeah, The world isn't ready, I think, for that sort of mixed methods paper in a serious way yet.
0: Why is the world not ready for it? What does that mean?
1: We're still ruled by disciplines. So, for instance, who's going to referee a paper like this? Right. I mean, you need a very well-trained econometrician, on the one hand. What, how, what are you going to make the qualitative work? I used to be on the editorial board of something called the Journal of Mixed Methods Research. It's now defunct. The thing with that journal, and the reason I think it went defunct, is that the quality of the work was weak on both quantitative and qualitative. But when it's good on both qualitative and quantitative, then it has to be read by referees who can appreciate what's good about it, which means they've got to completely understand, they're going to come from a completely different mindset to the part of the thing that's not their own you know, and that creates some issues. So which journal do you send it to?
0: You keep coming back to a theme I'd I'd like to bring up now, which is kind of an idea of seriousness and rigor in social science research. I'd like you to say a little more about what it means for that kind of work to be serious. What counts as serious and rigorous and what doesn't?
1: To me, work that doesn't satisfy the internal standards of a discipline in a way that, I mean, obviously all standards in some ways are arbitrary, but they they come for a reason, they're there for a reason. When it doesn't satisfy those standards, it's not rigorous work. Yeah, so rigor, I define rigor according to the discipline in which you're working. Now, when you're crossing disciplines, that becomes an issue. What is rigorous across a discipline when you working on different methodologies? We still have to evolve standards for what that is. But in development, which is an area that I... I'm not talking about development studies. I'm talking about development practice. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of qualitative work done, a lot of quantitative work done that doesn't meet standards of rigor from any discipline. There's also a lot of great work that meets wonderful standards of rigor, right? So Because the imperative is not scholarship. The imperative is either some sort of packaging or, you know, selling a product or getting funders interested or whatever. In the World Bank many years ago, there used to be something called beneficiary assessments that were done all the time. That is, you went and you tried to look at the impact of a project by talking to beneficiaries. And the purpose is perfectly valid. But when you're talking to quote-unquote beneficiaries, think of the way that logic is going to work. Who's going to talk to you? Those who benefited from the project, not from those who don't. Which means you're going to get this very rosy narrative of happy, happy stories.
0: Right. I think uh, just in my own sort of development studies here, reading David Moss, Cultivating Development. Which is a
1: wonderful work. That's what I call rigorous research.
0: His discussion is a lot about how kind of that narrative of success is something that's produced between, I mean, you could call them beneficiaries, you could call them citizens, participants, something that's produced between them and the development practitioners. Exactly. a, a discourse that comes up together.
1: Correct. And that, to me, is crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: now, I was at a talk of yours just earlier today. Yes. But one thing you talked about there was the importance of co-producing discourse. Yeah. I wonder if you could say a little more about that.
1: I mean, co-producing is an old idea, which in development studies, it goes back at least 30, 40 years. It goes back to Paulo Freire, I guess, even further than that. But the idea basically is that it's the notion of the expert, right? That we kind of know what's good and we go and fix things. And I think anthropology dismissed that a long time ago. But how do you do interventions I mean, you're trying to get away from the idea of the, the expert. Now, what that means is that basically you come to a common understanding of those who are supposed to be receiving the help and those who are supposed to be giving the help as to what that nature of that help should be and how it should be managed and how it should be assessed. How do we change that? Yeah, And and ideally, you change that by engaging in a real conversation, a real dialogue, a sort of a dialogic process, if you want to use those words, as to what that Form of assistance should take and what they should do with it and how it should be assessed. Yeah, I mean, Because everything is getting evaluated now. So who should do the evaluation? What does that mean?
0: So we're talking about creating goals for some kind of change. Creating goals
1: for change, creating processes to achieve those goals so that it leaves something behind and it doesn't just leave some money, which can be very badly misused. Yeah, How do you make that change happen? How do you make it happen over the long term? That requires in my mind, a process of co-production. It's a process of dialogue. Yeah. So it's how do you bring do- dialogue into interventions is, is really what I think the, our goal should be as development practitioners, as development researchers even, which is not yet the common practice.
0: How, what is the common practice?
1: Common practice is a design of an intervention that typically comes up because somebody else has done it somewhere and has claimed great success for it. And you say, okay, something worked in Indonesia, let's go try it in India or vice versa. I did a book five years ago called Localizing Development, where one of the things we did in these CDD projects, community-driven development projects, which mm-hmm. the bank at that point had spent $80
0: billion on. <laughs> that was the buzzword in Indonesia the whole time I was there. Yeah.
1: So that amount, for that amount of money, what we expected to find was that when these projects were designed, they would be very contextually designed. know, at least you would wonder about the political economy of the country. You try to assess the sociology, the social structures that you're working with. How would you? I mean, and in Indonesia, they actually did that with the KDP project. But that was the exception. For the most part, what we found was people were cutting and pasting projects done in Malawi with projects done in Morocco. I'm not kidding, you know we did a text analysis of those project appraisal documents, which are the design documents. Mm-hmm. And basically they found, I mean, in, the, in academia we'd call them plagiarized, but of course there's no plagiarism. They were cut and paste jobs. Uh-huh. yeah. Which means they were not caring about context. These were not coming up in a process of dialogue. These were essentially designs coming up with experts designing what these things were and hire a consultant, put it all together as a package, and sell it to the bank or whoever else. By the way, it's not just the bank that's guilty of it. Everybody is guilty
0: of this. Sure, yeah. And people are looking for global best practices everywhere they and go. The and
1: the notion of a best practice is the most unhealthy thing in development.
0: You say that best practice is an unhealthy thing in development. And unhealthy is, a, is an interesting word because it seems like a lot of the language we've been using so far is a language of medicine.
1: Yeah, and more so. Uh, it's becoming And of engineering, more.
0: engineering as well. I mean, what, what are the kind of dominant metaphors that people are using? Medical entirely medical now i mean it's i mean a randomized
1: control trials so that's right. a medical metaphor i mean you find people who sort of first came up with the idea of randomized control trials explicitly saying that we need to make development like medicine you know so that that's not even a hidden metaphor it's an explicit right. metaphor but you know metaphors are short forms right they help us in in a world of policy you can't spend too much time going on about you know, I know you anthropologists go on about where you came from, what you did, why you are where you are. You know, I've gone to many AAA meetings and been gone board of my mind listening to those sorts of speeches <laughs> uh, because you need to get to the point. You're in the real world. There's a time constraint. You have to get through. So understand, metaphors are shortcuts. They're helpful. They also result in a way of thinking and being and doing that sometimes can be unhealthy. We We get that.
0: Yeah. One of those things being, I mean, just thinking of medicine from a Western perspective, Uh, The idea that all human bodies will work along similar mechanisms.
1: Yeah, now that's a bad metaphor.
0: Which is not like there are many other medical systems in the world that assume that all bodies are different from each other.
1: So, no, no, let's stay with that point. Because I think you've, with that statement, you've pinpointed what to me is the single biggest problem in development with the RCT approach and with others. I mean, it's not, there's nothing wrong with an RCT. I do RCTs, right? Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with an RCT. It's a very important technique. It's a technique. Because it allows you to get at some understanding of the causal effect of an intervention. Right, and the best way we know how as human beings to assess causality is a randomized control trial, right, in a, with a large sample. So, it's a necessary technique method, but it results in a culture of development that then sort of assumes, you know, medical trials assume that human beings are basically have the same body systems. Right? That's right. why that's why drugs come up the way they do.
0: And, and that's, that a drug that works in America should work on Chinese bodies the same way it works on American that's bodies. That's the
1: assumption. The that slowly they're getting out of that, but that, that certainly is the assumption, and that's not coming into development. Not just that. When you're actually testing a drug, like the, one of the first RCTs was done with deworming medicine. To me, it's not a very wrong assumption to think that deworming medicine is going to work the same way as, on me as it works on you, Yeah, uh, even though we are, have different genetic makeups and so on. Yeah, But a community-driven de- development project that's trying to get us to engage as citizens, if you were sitting in Canberra and I'm sitting in Madras or someplace in India, Chennai, uh, is not going to work the same way. Yeah. So when you're doing an RCT with that assumption in mind of this sameness of social structure, that creates a problem. If the social structure is it, is the is the big thing you need to work with. So in fact, when these projects are done well, they're very contextualized to the village at hand, which means that you really can't effectively do a randomized controlled trial on them. So what happens with this sort of thinking is that what those are what you might call complex interventions, complex interventions start getting driven away, just as medical practice uh, on allopathic medicine, which does randomized control trials and drugs, has been tremendously effective finding drugs, all kinds of things, but has driven away more contextualized form of medicine. You know, Ayurveda, chiropractic or whatever else are considered inferior forms because they cannot be. Quite subject to the kind of randomized controlled trial results, so it's a, a new sort of ideology of what makes change possible.
0: And there's a sort of hierarchy of these knowledges, right? Depending on the method you use to get them.
1: Yes, there's definitely a hierarchy depending on the method, and and quant is better than qual. I think there's something intrinsically wrong about that. Now, by the way, I, I should I'm I'm been uh, critical of the quant types. I'm also going to be critical of the qual types, anthropologists and others.
0: Yeah, lay it on us.
1: Uh, so I'm going to lay it on you the huge resistance to numbers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember giving a talk at SOAS, where my friend David Moss works, and saying something about poverty measurement. And so, so this guy from Latin American grad student comes up to the stage and starts going into a 20 minute discourse of how numbers are evil. You know, numbers are not evil, they're just things. Yes, they are produced. I mean, you know, there's too much Foucault in your lives, I think. <laughs>
0: there's now, too much Foucault in everybody's lives. So
1: so true. I think I think we need to get to a post 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 structuralist point where we're not constantly interrogating everything sometimes things are necessary to do because when you're doing large interventions which are going to happen you have to assess them you have to do surveys you have to collect survey data that's not evil that's just necessary yeah all survey data have their problems have their issues and i think it's time anthropologists looked at survey data just as economists should be looking at qualitative information from your own disciplinary lens yeah
0: so you still find a lot of resistance from anthropologists to working in the development world or working with development instruments? Oh no,
1: I don't find resistance. Anthropologists would love to work in the development world; they just don't well, have opportunities. I mean, what the, yeah. <laughs>
0: well, that's another issue I want to get to in a second. One of the one of the kind of tropes out there is that development is anthropology's evil twin, and it goes into the same places that anthropologists work, and researches the same sorts of people. And then rather than sort of cataloging and uh, creating that taxonomy of human difference and protecting human difference. It's about creating change towards a sort of homogeneity and sameness. Yeah. Uh, how would you respond to that?
1: I can answer, respond to it in many different ways. Uh, I, I will remind you of the history of anthropology and of uh, apartheid, but I don't have to do that in this context. Uh, there is a danger towards categorizing cultures and trying to fix them and trying to manipulate them. Yeah. I think that danger is coming once again into the world today because people think they can fix cultures. Yeah. It, a lot of papers written on this, this by a lot of economists. Norm changes. Economists, oh, about yeah.
0: norm change. That's the term that economists use, norms instead of culture, or also culture?
1: Also culture. Uh, but, 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 you know, it, it's used a lot by a lot of economists. But the problem is that, they, that the complex debates around cultural change and trying to induce cultural change or norm change that anthropologists have been debating for a very, very long time are not part of the economist lexicon, they're not, they're not they don't read that stuff, right? So they're not coming to it with the sort of sophisticated understanding that an anthropo- anthropologist would with all the training that they have had. Yeah? But what anthropologists do that bugs the hegemony is critique. Be constructive for a change. You
0: know? I did, so doing a little bit of anthropological work in the World Bank in, in Indonesia, I did come to feel that the role of the anthropologist in development is to say why nothing will ever work.
1: It seems wrong to me. Why can't an anthropologist learn how to contribute towards design, learn how to contribute towards processes of co-production, learn how to make human beings actually matter in the process by which decisions are made, you know? Work towards those things.
0: Is that something that's lacking, making human beings matter?
1: Human beings matter with their agency intact, yes, that is lacking. It's it's not done very well. Uh, The whole, you know, some years ago, I did a book called Culture and Public Action, uh, with Mike Walton, we edited a volume and wonderful people wrote in it. Amartya Sen, Arjuna Padre, even the great late Mary Douglas. Uh, it was a, one of the best experiences of my life.
0: That's a great list. Uh, yeah.
1: If you've not read the book, you should. <laughs> uh, one of the things we did there was that we tried to say that what economists so obsess about is equality of opportunity, you know, the idea of having a level playing field on on material stuff, like mm-hmm. education, health, mm-hmm. and so on, which is, of course, centrally important. But he said what they miss is equality of agency, Yeah. So we need to worry both about equality of opportunity and equality of agency. How do we make equality of agency happen? How do we bridge those discriminatory boundaries that exist in the world?
0: How do you define agency in this context?
1: Capacity to speak and to be listened to. That's it. Yeah. And, and and we know that there's a lot of difference in that. There's enough evidence to show us that. How do we make that happen in development? That's where anthropologists can come in, You know, that, that, by, by thinking through those issues in a creative way. An old trope that used to go on when I was a kid called appropriate technology, mm. uh, so I, which I still believe in greatly. And I think if technology is appropriately, it works very well.
0: What does appropriate technology mean? Just to.
1: Where, where you're not falling for the method, but for what you can do with the method in order to make human agency possible. What do you mean? Well, let me tell you what I'm doing. <laughs> so, one of the things I'm trying to do is to give the ability to citizens, you saw this in the talk I just gave, to collect and analyze their own data. That is, why should access to data be the province of the expert? So how do we give it back to citizens? So we're using technology in two different ways. De- developing tablet-based survey systems that anybody can use, so it becomes very easy to collect the data. And secondly, we're using very sophisticated systems of visualization, sort of like an iPhone, where all the technical stuff is at the back, but at the user end, it's very easy to do, where the visualizing the data it becomes co-produced, so that even an illiterate person kind of see a picture and understand what the data are telling them. Yeah, and that's technology. You know, India has um, village democracy, all of the country, it's the uh, 73rd amendment to the Indian constitution that was passed in 1992, uh, which basically legislates, uh, mandates, that every Indian village should belong to a, a village, to have a village council, with the president, a vice president and members who are elected in an independently managed election every six years. And one third of all presidencies, one third of all village council seats are reserved for women. Uh, Proportion is reserved for uh, Dalits, that is, underprivileged caste. And that's the, the executive part of the village government. The legislative part is everybody. Every citizen of the village belongs to something called a Gram Sabha village forum. We are trying to give data to make the Gram Sabha more informed about its conditions. So when citizens look at data about their village that they have been, had a part in collecting and, and even thinking through what questions to ask, then they're able to assess how to spend their money and come to some sort of agreement about what resources. I mean, they, they, so It's not just about arguing about facts, the facts they have produced themselves. Okay? And it's not me as a you know, trained economist having done a survey and throwing facts at them. These are their own facts. Yeah? And we've seen that it makes a huge difference. So that's what I mean.
0: How does it make a difference? The
1: Kram Sabha is at the end a deliberative body where people are trying to come to some sort of collective decisions. And oftentimes what happens in a Kram Sabha is that you're arguing about facts. My part of the village is worse off than yours. You have more water than me. You have more of this than that. I need the resources for this. Those facts now can't be disputed because everybody has the same facts. Then having seen those facts, you can argue on priorities based on other things You know that, that would matter, how you weigh this part of the village, to that or whatever. Yeah? So it facilitates deliberative decision-making, community-level decision-making. That's one way. Second thing is that it creates a counter-narrative to top-down w- visions of data yeah, in the following sense. In India and many other parts of the world, every part of the world, uh, the poor are counted via survey systems that are developed by some statistical office. Mm-hmm. And you're told that you've this proportion of people living are below a dollar a day or something. There are many problems with that. One problem is the dimensionality of it. The second problem is it is a narrative produced by the government, by the state. Yeah. Here, the nature of who is poor and what living standards are is developed by citizens themselves. So, so it's a counter-narrative to that. You say we are poor, but look at, you say see, see we are not poor, but look at our living conditions. We have data to show you what these things are. So the counter-narrative results in a very different kind of more equal dialogue on policy.
0: But at the same time, this is a parallel system of fact creation to one from the state, which then it disputes.
1: Ideally, you want the state to buy into the system of data collection, which is what has happened in the state of Tamil Nadu. The government of Tamil Nadu is very excited by the system, and they want us to develop this throughout the state, so that both citizens and them can agree on the same facts, you see? Because it gives them data that's very different from the kind of data they already have. So in some ways, we hope this will change the dialogue on, on policymaking in poor areas. Uh, and that's, that's really what I hope this happens with this. We don't know whether it will go that far, but we're just starting on these things.
0: It seems like with participatory or community-driven development, things like that, development agencies are often sort of setting up parallel institutions to the state or picking up slack in areas where they feel the state is deficient and then perhaps hoping that the state will pick them up. Do you encounter a lot of resistance from government in particular, it was sort of uh, taking over their positions, or so hope that the government can continue to externalize all of those things to you?
1: For the most part, it's the governments who are coming up with these programs themselves. I mean, they understand what the bank does or anybody else does, and, and then sort of the ideas floating in the air that they come up with, but they're coming up with these things themselves. The idea is
0: floating in the air? It's floating in the
1: air. I mean, you know, CDD floats in the air, somebody writes, I mean it's all... <laughs> <laughs> if, 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 we, if, if,
0: we could get in a minute to sort of the faddishness and the, the, oh, quality, of, the quality of ideas floating in the air. And I that think it's a very... Uh, and it seems to be in 10-year waves, whether things come up from the bottom or down from the top.
1: I think 10 years is exactly right, yes. But the point I'm making about this is that these parallel systems are part of the political economy of the particular government that is doing the project. Sometimes it's being pushed by institutions like the bank and by USAID or DFAD or you know, people like that but sometimes they come from the government themselves. Yeah. I think it's terribly unhealthy, personally, for two reasons. One reason that it's unhealthy is that it doesn't result in a slow process by which, say, local government is strengthened, but you're creating these parallel institutions, say, of self-help groups, which are not connected to local government. Uh, ideally, if you were going to create self-help groups, you would want them coordinated with the local government so that they would work together and the best projects do that.
0: So there's still an idea, an end goal of a strong state?
1: Yeah, the end goal is of a more effective state, yes. yeah, And the fact that you would ask the question makes me wonder about anthropology. You don't like effective states.
0: Anthropology doesn't like anything.
1: Uh, that's my problem, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, so so anthropologists are trained nowadays.
0: I mean, so take, take, for instance, something you brought up earlier about how economists really want equality of opportunity. Yeah. And anthropologists, of course, are looking at culture, and many cultures are... It. Unequal yeah. by their development, they are—they are just not equal. They have caste structures, they have class structures, they have gender inequalities, and so to achieve equality of opportunity means changing culture.
1: Um, not necessarily, but yes, reforming culture, I would Re-
0: say yes. Reforming culture. Yeah. How is reforming different? I projects? don't
1: know. So that's why I say it has to be a pr- process of co-production. I mean, at the end, I mean, the way I think of these these processes. Are a sort of uh, social movements of micro sort, micro social movements. Every village has one.
0: Every village has one. Every village
1: has to make the change happen in its own, in its own interests. Yeah. But what will and of course it's going to be a lot of politics go, that goes on about who wins and who loses from that process. But but this is, this is not going to happen from the top. When these projects work, is because they facilitate underprivileged communities to take actions that at the end give them more uh, opportunity and more agency.
0: So to take a larger slice.
1: To take a larger slice, of both of... of power, of symbolic space, mm-hmm. and of material space. Yeah? Uh, that's how these equalizations happen at the end. And that's not an easy or slow, I mean, or a fast process. Um, so some work we've done in Bihar has found remarkable change happen uh, because women's groups started doing that in rural Bihar uh, because of an intervention that the government of Bihar uh, did uh, with the assistance of the bank called jivika And it's had these remarkable impacts.
0: So what kind of impacts has it had? From now, that cultural perspective. Yeah,
1: so, so Bihar, remember, is one of India's poorest states, deeply caste-ridden and deeply patriarchal. In that context, Jivika at its best, now Jivika is a, and now affects 13 million people. There's a lot of variation in what change it's able to make. But at its best, it, it was able to inculcate women's networks, develop women's networks in these villages that were able to work with each other to make gender relations more equal. Yeah, Women are now... Running for election all over the place, they are running businesses. Uh, I mean, the, the Bih- current Bihar Chief Minister sees them as his constituency, which is very strange. It's not caste anymore; it's gender. So, so
0: that's become the kind of new block forming solidarity, yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, 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 uh, And and it's not like life is transformed into something wonderful for them. It's just that become it's become more gender equal.
0: When you go into a place with an extreme inequality, for instance, an extreme gender inequality, and you try to co-produce that idea of what a good life would be or what those development goals should be, do you find that those ideas of the good life in the future are still deeply unequal in the same ways? Or do they do they look beyond that?
1: Not in India. You know, what's happening is I think there's been a tremendous equalization and aspirations.
0: An equalization of aspirations. Of
1: aspirations. People wanting the same thing because of, I, mean, I suppose everybody's looking at the same TV programs or whatever it is. But they all want the same things. I mean, you can go to slum after slum in India. You'll find parents wanting their kids to be doctors and lawyers. And you wonder, you know, are these aspirations too high? Will they be able to achieve those goals, you know, given the abject poverty in which they live?
0: What's at the root of that? Is it about making money? Is it about social position?
1: Both. uh, To to get out of poverty. And and, access to to another world? and Access to another world and social status. Do people
0: aspire to, like, high levels of indigenous Indian learning? (laughs) Not nearly as much. Indian
1: anthropology has been subject to the yoke of a term called Sanskritization that was developed by M.N. in 1962. It was all about that, that the way lower castes climb up in the world is by imitating upper castes. I just don't think that's true anymore. People are aspiring to far more prosaic things like professional occupations, dressing in a certain way. Every Indian village now has at least two or three quote-unquote beauty parlors. It's modernization of a particular kind, you know, it's not... I don't want to get into modernization theory and development and all that, but it's, it's a- It
0: feels like the aesthetics are really important. I and mean, I'm not just talking about a person's body, but a, a, the, the whole style of a person's life. Yes. To appear in a certain way. To
1: appear in a certain way, to be thought of in a certain way, to be not seen as an illiterate country bumpkin. You know That sort of change has happened and parents want it for their children. On the other hand, you know you have all these poor farmers saving, you know, making themselves bankrupt, to send their kids to school and the kids go to college. And can't find jobs at the end that meet their expectations. They come back to the village and start their farming again or or, or become, you know, wage laborers.
0: Do you find a building sort of class resentment that comes out of that? I mean, class resentment is a dominant story in countries like America right now.
1: I think there is a building class resentment that's coming out of that to some extent. There's certainly a lot of depression and drug use and uh, alcoholism that's coming out of that.
0: So one of the buzzwords, I think you mentioned it in your talk earlier, was adaptive development. Do you find that uh, projects are adapting to those new maladies like alcoholism and drug use? No,
1: adaptation is not a new idea in development. Right, it goes back to Albert Hirschman's Development Projects Observed, which is 1967. That is, it's 50 years old. Yeah. So and and it. it and has it still not sunk and, in? And and it was a buzzword then. It's a buzzword now. The problem is not the idea. The problem is getting it done, which means you have to change how people behave. That is, they should be absolutely willing to look at good and bad news. Which, with, people,
0: with, which people's behavior are you talking about? Oh, implementers. The, implementers. Uh, yeah, the, so governments. You know, governments.
1: Uh, policymakers, th- that sort of person, yeah? And adaptive development has got nothing to do with, with voice and agency. It's all about how bureaucracies function, yeah? So I think it's important, uh, but the question is, how do you do it? And that's what we've been trying to do with the social observatory for seven years.
0: Is there a lack of agency within the bureaucracies? In what sense? What is it that prevents adaptation from happening?
1: Incentives. Nobody wants bad news. Uh, everybody wants to package things in such a way that everybody thinks they're great and at what, what they do. Uh, that goes right up to the top of a political system.
0: So nobody wants to be associated with a failure. With a
1: failure. And therefore, then if you not, don't be associated with a failure, how are you going to learn from failure? If you don't learn from failure, you're not adapting. You know, You can't just adapt from success. A failure is something very specific in, in this adaptive language, which is basically that you did an intervention and it didn't work. That's why I call that people anatomy of failure. I mean, you don't meet the expectations of what the project is supposed to do. And so then you figure out why that didn't happen. Maybe your goals were wrong. Maybe the way you implemented it was wrong. Whatever it was, you would try to fix it the next time around. Yeah, that is how you adapt to failure. You learn from failure. Yeah. And that itself is a very hard task. This, again, this idea of co-production. I wish researchers and practitioners could co-produce their work, you know, that's what in the social observatory that I that I started, we try to do. We we sort of uh, we call it embedded research. Like you have embedded reporters, you know, at the army or something. Embedded research. It's embedded research. That is researchers sitting with practitioners on a long term basis, engaged in a dialogue with them, to both generate research questions and to feed back the results of that research to the practitioners. So that's a constant, ongoing process of dialogue.
0: So there's a strong division between researchers and practitioners all over the world.
1: Yes. And researchers come in, fly, and do their work, fly out, write the papers. Do and they
0: tend to be like academic people? They come from universities. Typically like academics. Yeah. Yeah, it's
1: typically academics, yeah. um, and which is fine. I mean, academics have to do their thing too, and that's slowly, slowly changing. Uh, partly because of all this RCT stuff, you know, which has gotten economists, development economists, to do a lot of their own surveys. Uh, Twenty years ago, development economists typically didn't do their own surveys. They the, where do they the, get their data from? Secondary data that governments collected typically. Yeah. That has changed. A lot of original data collection is now happening. Very good survey work is happening. So that has changed. But still, I would prefer there to be a more ongoing dialogue between researchers and practitioners. This whole this whole business of co-production, of dialogic development, of deliberative development, whatever you want to call it, I think that's where that needs to go. And that's again where anthropologists can play a very, very important role because you guys understand the process of dialogue. You know, you understand the process of giving uh, the respondent a say and how they're presented and how they're understood.
0: Yeah, there's a real concern in anthropology as to who speaks for whom.
1: Yes, exactly. And that concern has to come into development.
0: And it's not there now? No.
1: Development is a unique enterprise, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's something nowhere else that I know of, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, in human history has there been a dedicated bunch of professionals and institutions devoted to making the world a better place. And a lot of money being spent on that.
0: My answer to that is: it depends on your definition of better, because the Catholic Church would probably say they're an example. Sure,
1: but uh, right. But, it, but it, let's say <laughs> let's, 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 let's So we're uh, dealing.
0: We're we're dealing here with a particular definition of better, and how, and a series of changes to how to achieve that.
1: And and everybody has those biases. Right. Everybody in anthropology has those biases. Absolutely. Too, right. So 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 true. But think of it this way: the Catholic Church uh, thought they were making people better by saving them for God. Development professionals think. They're making the world a better place by giving them agency or opportunity, right? Both. I'm, I'm going to throw myself in that mix, obviously. But but it is, it is in some ways, uh, that sense of a very different enterprise, yeah. You know? And we've had to reinvent, rethink what the enterprise implies. And to me, the most significant book, piece of work that made us rethink that was 1967's Development Projects Observed, Albert Hirschman.
0: Albert Hirschman development projects observed.
1: Yes. It's a book I advocate that everybody in development should read because what this what Hirschman did he was told, you know, to basically look at 20 World Bank projects or something and say what what was wrong with them. And he said what's wrong with them? There are two things. They work when they fail. Because what happens then is people get creative and there's something called the hidden hand his words, hidden hand that comes that gen- a creative solution to a problem that makes the project actually work. Yeah. So he was basically advocating adaptive change. I mean, and he says that. I mean, that's, so 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 that
0: and also kind of experimentation and right? a kind of experimentation An openness to failure, yeah, Cass and openness to the unexpected, Precisely. unintended consequence. Precisely.
1: Yeah. I mean, development has been struggling with listening to Hirschman ever since then. Yeah. And all this adaptive PDI stuff is the latest attempt in that direction. So I hope we get there. Yeah. Uh, and to me, you will not get there if all this adaptive stuff is just about changing how bureaucracies work. Adaptation at the end has to involve the millions of people we are supposedly trying to help. They have to be part of the process. If that doesn't happen, this remains the kind of colonial enterprise. Uh, it has the hallmarks of, of similarities to colonial enterprise. The big difference between colonialism and development should be that quote-unquote beneficiaries are being facilitated to have a voice in how they are being quote-unquote helped. Yeah. That's where it has to go, and 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 I think how you do that, where you do that from, how all that comes in, how you change processes to make that happen, how you institute institutional change to make that happen, that's where uh, anthropologists could play a very very important role, I and mean, they're not doing so. They're not doing so. No. Anthropologists are in the business of critique. Anthropologists are in the business of publishing books that tell everybody how smart they are and how how good and uh, wonderfully motivated they are by. Higher concerns that everybody, everything that everybody else does is wrong and bullshit, right? Book after book after book that comes out that really gets my goat. Occasionally, you have a gem like David Moss's book that you that you mentioned. Or Any or other gems you can think of? Akhil Gupta's Red Tape. Oh, that's a uh, good one, yeah. Arjuna Padre's Anything He Writes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, they're, they're wonderful pieces of work. But they're critiques, right? And critiques are helpful. I mean, critiques are necessary.
0: They have a place. They ha-
1: absolutely have a place. But only critique? Also give me something positive, you know? Teach me how to do better design. Yeah,
0: well I think what you describe as positive as moving towards those goals of cultural change go against sort of what anthropology is all about, that idea of non-intervention.
1: Which I think is a is a problem. Yeah, because because there are some things we all agree are not good. Domestic violence is not good. Yeah? How do we make that not happen? Yeah. We all agree that lower castes getting discriminated against on a regular basis is not good. How do we make that
0: not happen? So if there are some cultural values or some some values such as that kind of equality or protection from violence that you feel are legitimate to spread to the entire world.
1: Absolutely. It's not just about people, it's not about individuals, it's the social structure that makes it happen. How do we change those structures? That's, that's activist change. Yeah? Social activists have been doing it for ever since human beings were on the planet.
0: And so as an economist, you also feel like you're engaged in changing social structures as well?
1: I don't know if I am, I, I think I'm trying to be. You're yeah, trying to be. Yeah. So 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 yes.
0: At the end of the day, do you feel like you're you're having an impact? I have no idea.
1: <laughs> I feel I am contributing to the processes by which these things are discussed, like every other scholar. I wish more people would read my work, <laughs> and the older I get, the more acutely aware I am of how small a dent any one of us makes. Uh, at the end, it's a collective enterprise, uh, and I, again, I, just as you know, their fads about development, their fads and ideas. But I really hope that at the end, all those fads and ideas on development result in that one goal, which is the co-production between people are being helped and the people are doing the helping in dialogue to make the world a better place. And I think we more or less are trying to be, we just don't know how.
0: Well, on that note, I'd like to thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you, Ian. It's been a great pleasure and uh, nice to have a conversation with an anthropologist. I've not done it in a while. Thanks. Thanks.
0: Was it me and Vijayendra Rao? Today's episode was produced by me, Ian Pollock, with help from Simon Theobald, Julia Brown, and Jody Lee Trembath. Our executive producer is me, Ian Pollock. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. And don't forget, leave us a rating or review with your likes, dislikes. It helps people find the show, and it helps us make the show better. You can find show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world, at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at the tweet at TFSTweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. There's a link to his EP in the show notes. Special thanks to the whole team at Anthropod at Cultural Anthropology, plus Julia Miller, Will Grant, Maude Rowe, and Nick Trembath. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep talking strange.